0: Good afternoon. It's Friday, the 3rd of July, 2020, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. I'm your host, Mike Robinson. Joining me in the studio today, Patrick Henningsen from 21st Century Wire. Welcome to the program, Patrick.
1: Great to be with you, Mike. Uh,
0: well, let's get straight on, uh, Patrick, with uh, with this. Uh, Jeffrey Epstein, ex-girlfriend, uh, Gisley and Maxwell, charged in U.S.
1: And it's an incredible story, Mike. I mean, who would have thought uh, that she would actually have been uh, caught by the FBI, Well, there's a story behind this, but let's just look at right now what the charges are. Uh, Ghislaine Maxwell, daughter of the uh, fabled uh, super spy and media mogul Robert Maxwell, she was arrested in New Hampshire at a luxury uh, property that she uh, paid cash for, I believe, by the FBI in relation to alleged sex crimes involving her late uh, close friend and convicted sex offender Jeffrey Epstein. And uh, the charges range from perjury, I believe that's from a, a, a previous, uh, might be from a previous case, transportation of minors, conspiracy to entice, procure underage sex workers, so basically trafficking uh, underage girls uh, for uh, sexual exploits with Jeffrey Epstein, uh, wh- whatever he was doing at his v- various mansions, properties, and private islands, so uh, that's the story, but here's the question behind the story, Mike: Why did she leave France, the, the relative safety of France, only to be arrested in the in the United States? And so, so
0: why do you say relatively safe? There's no extradition, is that it?
1: Yeah, she could have remained there um, in stasis for an in, indefinite period of time because France doesn't extradite its its own citizens. She's a French citizen. She was born uh-huh. in France to a French mother. Uh, so, but she was caught in New Hampshire, which is amazing. So we dug around a little bit, and there's a few clues as to why this might be the case. This is just a story that broke yesterday as well. Attorneys for alleged Jeffrey Epstein sex slave Virginia Roberts Guffrey were ordered Wednesday to destroy evidence from her case against Ghislaine Maxwell as lawyer Alan Dershowitz was also denied access to potentially explosive information. This is a Manhattan federal judge, Loretta Presca said she was troubled to learn that during oral arguments last week that uh, Gouffre's lawyers uh, from the firm of Cooper and Kirk had been given sealed records from her since settled suit against Maxwell in the in the past, uh, who Gouffre claims recruited her to have sex with Epstein and his pals while she was underage. So it's kind of a, a clue here, Mike, that. Uh, she, she might very well be able to plead down to something very minor. Uh, she denies uh, all allegations already. She's already publicly stated that uh, as well. So um, it could be you know, brought down to such a low level, and it, she doesn't uh, you know, have that hangover head, that other evidence that's been ordered to be destroyed. So is the legal fix in? This is the question.
0: Well, many questions still remain over the death of uh, Epstein himself. So the question is, uh, is she safe while she's in custody? Uh,
1: That's a good question. A lot of people will speculate that she's uh, on suicide, will be on suicide watch like Jeff. I don't know if you could pull that off twice. There's a lot of people that argue, though, Mike, that she is of a higher rank uh, than Jeffrey Epstein uh, in this story. In other words, she's very well connected. There's connections, obviously, via her father uh, with Israeli intelligence mm-hmm. and high society, the royal family. So she is a socialite, after all. So she's not just anybody. Uh, and she's not a mercurial wonder kind like uh, Jeff Epstein, who came out of nowhere and then dissolved into nowhere, mm-hmm. uh, effectively. So, But uh, wh- how, how is the uh, British press dealing with this right now? Well, we picked up this uh, cover here. I took this snap from my local newsstand, actually. Uh, but bet you're sweating now, Andy. Of course, that was Prince Andrew's alibi before. Is that uh, uh, Virginia Roberts Goffrey said that uh, he was perspiring profusely at Tramp's nightclub, and Andy's defense was, of course, that he he has a, a certain medical condition that doesn't allow him to sweat. So, uh, but you know, how is this going to affect Clarence House? What's the uh, royal family thinking right now? And really, it really just comes down to this. Mike, keep calm and carry on. I don't think. There's a lot of poking and prodding. Is is Prince Andrew going to be pulled in for questioning by the FBI? They've wanted to interview him. I don't think it's going to happen, Mike. I don't think Prince Andrew's going anywhere. And one might argue that Maxwell putting herself in, in, in between uh, the royal family in this case might very well provide the uh, deflection or the distraction to keep Andrew and the House of Windsor safe, mm-hmm. safely behind their walled gardens at their various assholes and so forth. So absolutely. So th- so that's it. it's, it's a breaking story. It's an ongoing story. So we'll, you know we'll, we'll keep an eye happens. on it. Yeah. Uh,
0: okay. Well, uh, <laughs> something else that might be breaking tomorrow is uh, the possibility that people are breaking the doors down on the pubs uh, to go and have a drink. Is that actually what's going to happen?
1: Super Saturday is supposed to be July fourth tomorrow. Of course, in America, this is going to be a very contentious day for other reasons. Uh, but July July fourth in the UK is Super Saturday. Um, what is the story with this? Are people actually going to be going out? Can we declare this is victory day uh, over the corona? Is Boris is Boris going to give a you know a rousing speech this afternoon? Hopefully, mm-hmm. well, we don't know. But let's take a look at uh, what victory day is going to look like tomorrow. Um, so Boris is saying, go out, but don't overdo it. So we've got our marching orders there from the prime minister. Uh, and here's an interesting statistic. Uh, this is a poll that was just run. A mainstream poll source here is the independent newspaper. Seven percent say they will go uh, say they will go to the pub, and three percent say they 'll dine out as a majority suggests it is too early to take advantage of new freedoms yeah. in England, so this is a very potentially very low turnout for Super Saturday. Uh, the implication here is that people are too scared because of the corona uh, to step foot or dare to go in for a pint so and here's an interesting point here, Mike, that was also raised. The government has to raise the limit on mourners at funerals. This is all part of the uh, Super Saturday rollout. What do you think about that?
0: Uh, fantastic. So uh, that's more of a social occasion than going to the pub, it seems.
1: So a compassionate, authoritarian government <laughs> there. They're going to allow mourners... At funerals. I feel like we're living in a Terry Gilliam film sometimes. Uh,
0: Absolutely. Now, this term new freedoms is really important because uh, this is something that's been drifted out through a a number of mainstream media uh, uh, reports over the last few weeks. Um, Basically, the suggestion is that uh, the suggestion through this, just like new normal, that any freedom that we had before is gone. Yeah, that, that is the implication of it.
1: Yeah. Privileges of the old normal Absolutely. don't exist don't anymore. don't exist anymore. So we should embrace our newfound freedoms, the ability to go to the pub and to queue up in a, in a kind of socially distanced environment with stickers and signs everywhere. But Let's just go back to uh, Victory Day, and this is what you really got to look out for, everybody. So maybe this is why uh, the turnout is supposed to be low. I mean, look at that, pint of Guinness, and then look on the top of that, mic. Normally that's a shamrock. But not tomorrow. Not tomorrow. Not tomorrow. Mm-hmm. is active in pubs. We've warned about this as well. You know, he doesn't, well, we think he's active. We're not sure. He's a bit confused. More, more, on, more that, on that later. Yeah. More on that later. But um, this is a Plymouth uh, local uh, story here, Mike. Um, for about a month ago, this the city spray painted a COVID 19 keep apart all these stencils all over the sidewalks. In fact, this is all over the country. You can see this. And and it's kind of sad. They began to fade, obviously, because of the rain. And people were just walking over them, not really paying any attention to them. So in a desperate bid to sort of revitalize the effort uh, for Super Saturday, the city's come out and done a new version in red. And it's it's they're already fading. You can see it's quite sloppy. There's red paint around the edges there. And the... It, this is really a tragic picture that speaks volumes about how governments are approaching this crisis and trying to keep it going. Mind you, these, these stencil signs that are basically all over the uh, streets of the city, those only appeared in you know, the middle of May, yeah. long after the virus had peaked, long after the crisis had peaked. So yeah, that's in a nutshell.
0: Well, we'll have more on the local response uh, in a little bit, but uh, let's uh, come to this now because, of course, uh, uh, self-isolation is lifted. uh, If you want to travel, except for Leicester, Uh, they're still not. uh, They're still in self-isolation. So apparently we're allowed to travel uh, from the 10th of July. I'll be able to travel to many countries without having to self-isolate on return to the UK. Uh, Passengers returning and visiting England from certain destinations, including Germany, France, Spain and Italy, will no longer need to self-isolate on arrival uh, and there are going to be exemptions for a number of destinations uh, from the Foreign and com- Commonwealth Office. Uh, all passengers except those on what's being described as a small list of exemptions will still be required to provide contact information on arrival in the UK. Uh, and uh, we'll have a brief uh, consideration of that small list of exemptions in a second. But what's clear from that uh, list, Patrick, is that um, Uh, on return there's a form required to be filled and depending on what uh, your capacity is when you return depends on which form you actually fill. So uh, who is exempt from this? Well travellers from the common travel area, so that's Ireland uh, Channel Islands and so on um, but that's only on condition that you've been in the common travel area for 14 days or more. So if you can't demonstrate that you've been in the common travel area for 14 days or longer, then you will still need to self-isolate. And that's, so that, that's to avoid people trying to get into the UK, apparently, via the Republic of Ireland.
1: Yeah.
0: Uh, because, of course, there are no border checks in the common travel area. Um, so but so you've got to demonstrate that you've been in f- for at least 14 days in the common travel area. So who else is uh, uh, exempt from this? Members of the diplomatic missions, consular posts, representatives of a foreign country. This is why Mr. Macron was able to come a couple of weeks ago with apparently not having to self-isolate for 14 days. Uh, defence personnel serving defence personnel, UK officials and contractors, non-UK officials and contractors uh, who are having to work on essential border security duties crown servants people who live in the UK but work in another country people who work in another country sorry that live in another country but work in the UK there's going to be some kind of reciprocal deal there as well uh, civil aviation uh, inspectors pilots drivers of goods vehicles the, the list goes on it's not a short list mm. the, the government says it's a short list it's not a short list so
1: corona is not interested in any of those people no no those people on that are list.
0: absolutely uh, just, tourists. just tourists just yes. tourists yes Yes, because uh,
1: he is. He is funny like that. Carone.
0: He's certainly very confusing. Um, so uh, so let's see what Grant Shapps uh, has is saying about this. He said today marks the next step in a in carefully reopening our great nation. He said the entire nation has worked tirelessly to get to this stage. Therefore, safety must remain our watchword and we will not hesitate to move quickly to protect ourselves if infection rates rise in countries we're reconnecting with. Um, except if you're one of the people on the very short list, which is very long. <laughs> so there you go. Don't really know what else to say about this. But uh, getting back to Leicester for a second, Patrick, uh, it seems not everybody is willing to cooperate.
1: That's right. That's right. So this is a, a, a local um, cha- uh, group of businesses, actually, clo- a closed factory. Uh, boss here refuses to close. Uh, he's basically saying we can't afford to shut. So he falls within the sort of regional local lockdown zone, that the uh, uh, Lester, Greater Leicester uh, Authority has imposed because of an alleged outbreak of, quote, cases. Um, so it's nice to see there's a few businesses pushing back here. This one, uh, this was in the Metro newspaper, uh, I believe, on the, uh, just on Wednesday here, Mike. And also, a, a lot of these businesses are being represented through uh, the legal challenge by Simon Dolan. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is uh, apparently moving forward. It's it's reached another phase this week. Um, so, and, and it's interesting. Again, most of the people who are um, involved in that are small to medium-sized businesses, mm-hmm. independently owned businesses, not big corporations. So, because they're already represented by government themselves. So, this is very interesting.
0: Um, okay. Now, I received an email uh, this morning which said this. Uh, just wanted to get your opinion as I've been sharing the details of lockdown dates and what was Corona doing, uh, Corona doing, uh, but thought about it yesterday and wondered why Sweden also had a similar peak Uh, when they didn't lock down so what's this about well first of all it was about the observation that uh, more and more evidence is coming to light uh, that coronavirus has been with us for much longer than we've been told Uh, well this is another day and we have another example of that Uh, this is a a scientific paper sars-cov-2 in human sewage in santa catalina brazil november 2019. so it's absolutely clear that uh, coronavirus has been with us uh, since the fourth quarter last year. And as actually, we showed uh, earlier in the week uh, that it goes back even further than that to, to February, March, April time as well. So, uh, of course, the point that we were making was uh, if this is the excess mortality in England and Wales and uh, that's the date of lockdown, then the question is, what was Corona doing the rest of the time? Uh, and in fact, we can take that uh, that because as you can see from the from the beginning of the year, there was no excess mortality in the country at all. in fact, the same for the fourth quarter last year quarter last year. So what was Corona doing during all this time and then, as soon as the lockdown appears, uh, we have deaths, excess mortality going through the roof, and so we're labeling labeling those as lockdown deaths. Now, the email that's been sent is asking well. The situation seems to be the same in Sweden. Sweden didn't have a lockdown, so how can you say that these are lockdown deaths? Well, let's have a look at that. Um, so here's the Euromomo graph, which looks very similar to the one I've just shown you. Showing you The purple line on the graph there is when lockdown began, and you can see the peak. This is just for England, not England and Wales, and you can see the peak. It's quite a sharp peak. It's quite an it's extremely intense peak of excess mortality compared to the previous years. Uh, and let's bring uh, Sweden... On screen. And first of all, what we can see is these peaks are quite different, Patrick. Um, but the key point here is that although Sweden didn't have a full lockdown, uh, it did close some schools. It certainly had all the rhetoric being pumped out by the mainstream press about the dangers of coronavirus. And Sweden, in fact, had exactly the same uh, care home problem that the UK had. Uh, people were dying in the care homes. Uh, through for for probably the same reasons that that they were dying in the care homes here. There was no proper medical assistance being given to care homes uh, and so on. So Sweden had some of the problems that the UK had. Uh, It didn't result in the same type of peak that the UK has had, uh, but it did have some excess mortality and there was a peak. So the question in my mind, Patrick, is, is it possible to find a country in the world where People didn't know about uh, coronavirus. Maybe we get a better idea if we can find such a
1: country. You could say that's a control group. You could could say
0: that. So, in fact, there is one. And here it is. Myanmar. Parts of Myanmar unaware of COVID-19 due to Internet ban, Rights advocates say. This is from NPR. Uh, And what's being highlighted here is this. According to tracking by John Hopkins University, Myanmar has had 293 cases uh, and uh, six deaths. So um, this is, just, corona. just gets more amazing by the day, Patrick, Tied
1: to, tied to COVID-19, yes, so. But
0: it, it gets more amazing by the day because it seems that if you don't know that it exists, you don't die from it. That seems to be the case. So there are still many, many questions here to be asked uh, and answers needed
1: to be found. It's the old saying, Mike, if, if, if a tree falls in the forest and no one's there, did it, did it really fall? And Well, we found that with tree, didn't we, in Myanmar?
0: Uh, That seems to be the case. So, so uh, I think uh, it's reason. The question was a very good question, and thanks very much for it. But I think uh, the evidence still suggests that uh, the lockdown deaths are lockdown deaths. There's certainly more and more evidence growing by the day Mm -hmm. that coronavirus was around for a lot longer than we've been told
1: it has been. But we're meant to think that uh, corona was just sitting on the sidelines, waiting for March. In April, he was around, but he wasn't active. Not active. He was holding back. Absolutely. Yeah.
0: Absolutely. Um, now, of course, uh, we talked about uh, Lester already this morning and uh, what is the local response? Well, thank you very much to the person who sent this to me today. Uh, this is from World Council. Uh, they have uh, uh, produced a COVID-19 outbreak prevention and control plan. And the point that was made to me in, in the email, of course, is that this is a pretty massive change in local government, government procedures and how things are organized and how things... And so it doesn't seem like this is for the short term at all. So we're just very briefly going to run through this. I'm not going to go into it in any great detail, but what they're saying is here is COVID-19 has not going gone away, as well as continued alertness. We need to prevent local outbreaks and be prepared for when they occur. So we are going to see many more local shutdowns of the type that we've seen in Leicester. Um, and... Uh, So we'll just run through this. They're talking about what their plan aims to do. They're wanting to sustain the decrease in infection rates, sustain the reduction in the risk of transmission, ensure vulnerable people are protected in community settings, and so on. They've got uh, all kinds of nice diagrams in here explaining how this uh, uh, is going to be based on NHS uh, track and trace, part of their response. It's going to be underpinned by huge public engagement exercise. Does that mean propaganda? seems like it. Absolutely. So let's uh, keep going. They've got uh, a tier one is all about prevention. Tier two is all about uh, control. Tier three is all about management, testing, track and trace. It's all there, The all the buzzwords. Uh, and this has happened because uh, the government has asked every council to produce a local outbreak engagement plan with a board. It's going to be funded by central government and so on. It's going to have uh, all kinds of nice diagrams to explain how it works. Uh, But surveillance is a large part of it. They're going to implement an information system to ensure the national, regional, and local information flows, enable effective case management and outbreak prevention, control, and management. There's been no comment as yet uh, as we build these surveillance networks and we build this big data platform uh, at a local level and at a national level what the data protection implications are. So far, the Information Commissioner seems to be absolutely silent on this, uh, and I think it needs to be raised. Uh, Communications are going to uh, roll out the Keep World Well campaign propaganda to promote continued protective measures and behaviours. Uh, behavioural science at the centre of this, as we have been highlighting for quite a bit of time. Uh, and so uh, they end up with uh, another Uh, example of what they're building, a local outbreak hub, uh, a call center with advice and guidance. They're going to have a training lead, communications lead, public health specialists, environmental health officers, infection prevention control specialists, administrators, data analysts, all working together to keep us safe. You must feel so much better, Patrick, uh, knowing that this this type of thing is being replicated across every local authority in the country.
1: I suppose you'd feel better if you could hitch a ride on that gravy train, Mike. Uh, but you, you look at how it's all constructed. I'll just I'll just round off with this comment, Mike. It's all based on cases, testing, testing cases, R numbers, rates of transmission. But they're not talking about hospitalizations and deaths. Those are the only, and according to top epidemiologists like Oxford University's uh, team, there that, is, that deaths and hospitalizations are the only reliable benchmark. That you can use to uh, determine whether uh, what, what the severity of the threat is, mm. how big the emergency is. If you're not using that as your benchmark, anything uh, transmissions, the common cold, uh, the, the testing is dubious, okay? Uh, and so is the labeling of COVID uh, cases and, and deaths as well. So, with all of these data experts, do you think somebody could go and find an accurate way to label whether it's a COVID death, dying with COVID or from COVID, because aren't these statistics important?
0: Uh, you would think so, uh, but it depends what you're what you're aiming to achieve, doesn't it? It does. Um, okay, if you like what the column does, you'd like to support us, then please head over to ukcolumn.org forward slash community, uh, options to do that there, and your help would be very much appreciated. Now, on Wednesday afternoon, uh, the, Co- the House of Commons uh, so, um, Science and Technology Committee met Uh, The theme was UK science, research and technology capability and influence in global disease outbreaks. Uh, And they were talking about a whole range of different things. But the subject of T cell immunity came up and was quite a a topic for discussion. We'll come to the specifics on that in a second. But it resulted in a number of uh, mainstream media articles, including this one from the BBC. Coronavirus immunity may be more widespread than tests suggest. So let's just have a look at what the BBC was saying here. People testing negative for coronavirus antibodies may still have some immunity. A study has suggested, uh, they say, uh, for every person testing positive for antibodies, two were found to have specific T cells which identify and destroy infected cells. This was seen even in people who had mild or symptomless cases uh, of COVID-19. Now, of course, uh, UK column. Viewers and listeners would know all about this if you'd been watching the episode on the ninth of May, because we covered this in detail, including this article from Science, T-cells found in COVID-19 patients bode well for long-term immunity. However, the focus in this country is still on antibodies. And so I want to just reinforce uh, the issue with antibodies Uh, This, of course, uh, a typical uh, headline from Nursing Times, health and care staff front of queue for game changer antibody tests. These are game changer in the sense that they are unreliable. They they um, don't work. Uh, And of course, antibodies don't stick around for too long. So let's have a look at some of the science on this. Uh, This is scientific paper. Uh, is making this point. Using longitudinal plasma samples from 30 COVID-19 patients, we observed that virus-specific antibodies are detectable in 100% of patients two weeks after symptom onset. We also show that these patients produced variable levels of neutralizing antibodies, which reached a plateau two weeks after symptom onset, and then declined in the majority of patients. Furthermore, we report that neutralizing antibodies were undetectable in 56% of asymptomatic carriers. So if your entire track, trace and immunity passport system is going to be based on antibodies and 56% 56 of asymptomatic carriers don't have any or at least they're undetectable, how is that going to work? The answer is it isn't. Uh, They provided a nice graph uh, which shows exactly how it works. Uh, and they're making the point that after 59 days, uh, antibodies are undetectable in 54, 54.5% of the cohort. After 74 days, that had gone up to 63.6% undetectable. So, if you're basing your entire uh, system, uh, as we showed in the in the local uh, r- report that we've just shown you uh, from the local council, from world, world local council, if you're basing all that on antibody tests then that gives you plenty of scope for suggesting that, well, actually, immunity, you're not immune. There's no antibodies detected. We can't give you a, a, a passport uh, for immunity because we can't discover that you're immune.
1: Even though you might be immune. Uh, absolutely. It, it, I'll, just, I'll just say, Mike, that with regards to antibody tests, the time to have deployed that would have been at the beginning of the, pro- of the crisis to do random sampling of groups around the country to determine the true infection fatality rate. Of course, they didn't do that. For some reason, the first time in history, governments didn't do that. Health officials didn't do that. That's normally what you do in an outbreak of any epidemic. And it seems to me, Mike, that uh, one of the reasons they didn't do that, because if they did, it would have shown that the infection fatality rate was much, much lower than the 3.4% which was being touted by the World Health Organization and by U.S. authorities and also by Imperial College and people like this. Uh,
0: absolutely. So uh, let's uh, bring up another scientific paper here because T-cells are the uh, route to long-term immunity, not antibodies. And this particular report makes this point. Importantly, we detected SARS-CoV-2 reactive CD4 T-cells in around 40 to 60% of unexposed individuals, so in their test, they had some people that had been exposed to SARS-CoV-2, some others that had never been exposed to SARS-CoV-2, and in 40 to 60% of the unexposed individuals uh, that they found that they had T-cell immunity to SARS-CoV-2. How did that happen? Well, they say that this suggests cross-reactive T-cell recognition between circulating common cold coronaviruses and SARS-CoV-2. And if that's the case, Then, of course, uh, in the UK, as with every other country, then we already have nearly or absolutely have herd immunity uh, with respect to SARS-CoV-2 because we, uh, we are t- getting T cell recognition as a result of having been exposed to common cold coronaviruses in the past. So getting back to the Science and Technology Committee uh, uh, discussion yesterday, they had a couple of uh, experts on from, from Oxford University. One was uh, this lady, Professor Sarah Gilbert. She said, it's possible we're underestimating natural or already acquired immunity to this virus. Uh, She said there's certainly evidence that people have not developed antibodies but have developed a T-cell response. And her colleague, uh, who is Sir John Bell, uh, said so there's probably background T-cell immunity in people before they see the coronavirus uh, but he did say that those T cells get a bit tired once you get beyond the age of 65 and may not be as effective at removing a virus. So this is absolutely key because the point that you've been making so strongly over the last number of weeks, Patrick, is that this affects older people. Uh, it doesn't affect younger people. Why is that? Because younger people tend to have remos- more robust immune systems. They have uh, better T cell numbers uh, and are able to react in a better way to this disease, just as they do with the common cold. Now, with the common cold, uh, the average adult perhaps exposed to the common cold once or twice per year. Uh, The average child apparently uh, is exposed to the common cold maybe 12 times per year. So so children absolutely getting exposed on a much more regular basis. Uh, to the common cold virus, they build up much stronger immune system so it doesn't affect them so badly?
1: As long as you're not social distancing them and isolating everybody, Mike, um, then otherwise we, we will have immunity, much more immunity than people are able to measure. This really throws a spanner into the whole uh, Bill Gates approach uh, to his uh, va- great vaccine project um, so that people have immunity but you can't necessarily test for it. It ruins the whole sort of track and trace vaccine matrix. Uh,
0: Absolutely. So uh, coming back to what he's saying here, T cells get a bit tired once you're beyond the age of 65. How does that happen? Uh, Well, let's have a look at this. Uh, Another reason vitamin D is important. It gets T cells going. Uh, This is from Scientific American, and lo and behold, perhaps no surprise. Uh, the silent epi- epidemic of the elder- elderly here, vitamin D deficiency. So vitamin D, absolutely key role to play in the production of T cells. Uh, older people tend to have low levels of vitamin D, and so they suffer uh, uh, respectively. And the same, in fact, for z- zinc. Uh, here, with the role of zinc, there's a number of scientific papers here, the role of zinc in the immune system. Uh, this one, uh, regulation of T cell receptor signaling by activation-induced zinc influx. Uh, Another one here, the immune system and the impact of zinc during aging. And again, lo and behold, uh, we have the situation that there is zinc deficiency in the elderly. So it shouldn't be a surprise then that the elderly find it harder uh, to to, uh, get rid of this if they get it. And if they do get it uh, because they don't have, uh, they've got a suppressed immune system because of vitamin D and zinc for other reasons as well. But those are key. uh, Then uh, they don't have the, the necessary t cell. Uh, keep uh, numbers to fight off this this thing, and they tend to get Ill, uh, you know
1: a stronger illness. But who needs zinc? Who needs vitamin D, Mike? When you've got the vaccine, as Bill Gates would say. Right. Why do you need all these other natural supplements and uh, nutrients and things like that when you can just, you know, stick a needle in your yeah room? with a corporate shot, and then it's uh, supposedly well cured. That's the. Uh, that 's the the narrative that they 're pushing anyway, so uh, absolutely yeah.
0: now i 'm moving on to masks uh, quickly here, uh, Patrick. I uh, just wanted to highlight this article from the new york times it 's really spectacular how to help, how to help kids embrace mask wearing we 've got to help kids embrace mask wearing
1: because kids need to be wearing the mask because they're, because they're immune. To COVID-19 uh, right absolutely which is why they should be wearing absolutely. a mask all day
0: absolutely right? so okay. what do they say in this article it is spectacular what a beautiful thing a face mask mask uh, is a face mask if it gives us back our world right what do you where do you start with that gives what a us our freedoms back absolutely uh, most children enjoy the chance of feeling morally superior to adults and adults often make this all too easy Go ahead and encourage a little righteousness is what the New York Times is implying, uh, trying to suggest here. This is the same mentality that uh, brought us Greta Thunberg, of course. Mm. This is the, uh, the uh, attempt to bring children in as the, the bosses of the planet because they are best equipped yeah. to encourage their adult friends and family and so on to uh, uh, you know, do the right thing.
1: This is so twisted. This is the sort of twisted kind of uh, reframing, um, I would call it brainwashing, uh, that they're, they're putting on to kids and then also allowing the kids to sort of act like brown shirts against the adult population.
0: Absolutely. Most children enjoy the chance to feel, oh, that's a, that's a repeat. I do apologize. So, so, you know, what can we say about that? Uh, it's like, the, you know, we've got to bring the children out in front because the children are the ones that are going to uh, encourage the parents to do the right thing.
1: The children are selling the agenda. They're selling the agenda. So speaking of masks, uh, staying on that subject, uh, this was an op-ed that uh, got a lot of traction over the last week. This is Dr. Simone Gold and her commentary. This was in USA Today. We do not consent. Uh, She's interesting because uh, Dr. Gold is not just an MD, Mike. She's also a JD. She's a lawyer as well. This is what she has to say about the whole mask controversy. She says, it is clear to me as a physician lawyer that the disinformation about both COVID-19 and the Constitution has caused us to turn a medical issue into a legal crisis. And uh, what she means here is that the scientific usefulness of a mask has been so aggressively overstated and the foundational importance of the Constitution has been so aggressively understated uh, that we have normalized people screaming obscenities at each other while hiking. Yes, it, That's how crazy it is right now in the United States. The mask has become a partisan issue on top of this. But but uh, she goes on here. Dr. Gold describes a situation saying that uh, the COVID virus was supposed to be contained in the kind of lab where people wear astronaut suits and go through triple sealed doors. Uh, it is a con of massive proportion to assert that now, having escaped those environs, uh, a bandana will magically Do the trick. I'm thinking of uh, London Transport right now, Mike, and the diktats of uh, uh, Mayor Khan. But uh, she goes on here to to talk about the technical problem here and reveal the real issue is that the pore size of each face cloth covering range from 20 to 100 microns. The COVID virus is 200 to 1,000 times smaller than that at 0.1 microns. And putting up, it's like putting up a chain link fence uh, will not keep out a mosquito. So even the most esteemed medical journals admit their purpose is to calm anxiety. He's talking about masks. Um, expanded masking protocols, the greatest contra- contribution may be to reduce the transmission of anxiety. So medical officials are admitting that you know it doesn't do a whole lot to stop the transmission of the virus, but it's more about calming others within your orbit. And then finally, she says, of course, Uh, By knowledge or common sense observation, most Americans already know that masking everyone is superstition. But unlike privately carrying a lucky charm, mandating facial coverings uh, require the consent of the governed here. And so really what she's saying is that, and she does comment, Mike, that there's a number of other cultures um, that have clothing mandated which are totally irrational Mm. to outsiders. This is an interesting cultural Uh, Comment that she's made, but never have those cultures pretended that there is any scientific basis for this new clothing requirement. The leaders rule; their citizens accept uh, that their choice of clothing is due to religious or cultural preferences. So this does fit a kind of religious, uh, uh, you know, it's you can characterize this as a kind of religion. Mm. uh, The COVID crisis. So this brings us to the big question. This is the real fundamental question here. To Zorro or not to Zorro—that is the question. And uh, one of our our uh, viewers has sent this picture: some crazy woman up in Scotland, Scotland yeah. apparently wearing a tartan mask. It's the most bizarre th- I don't know who sh- who this person is, but anyway, um, you know, you're better off carrying one of these on your keychain. Oh. Yeah, you're you're better off carrying one of those um, on your on your keychain, Mike. So a rabbit's foot, basically. Uh, so that's what we're saying, uh, to mask or not to mask. It, it, the mask is really like a lucky charm. Uh,
0: it seems that way. Now, uh, you gave the giveaway a little bit there, Patrick, uh, but we have uh, Bill Gates uh, on screen now. That's nice, isn't it? Uh, what was he saying? Well, he was saying yesterday that uh, you'll have a choice whether or not to take the vaccine, um, but that's the final hurdle as far as he's concerned about encouraging people to take it. Will they take it or are they going to try to avoid taking it. But he's claiming that it's going to be a choice. And the question I'm asking uh, now, Patrick, is will it be a choice? Now, it seems increasingly clear that there's not going to be any kind of mandatory requirement from governments uh, to impose this. But it's increasingly looking like it's not necessary for there to be a mandatory legal uh, or legislative uh, imposition of this, uh, because it's all coming through the corporate uh, so let 's have a look at this as an example. Colorado Governor signs bill tightening vac- vaccine exemptions, uh, and this is for children going to schools. Uh, some children uh, have exemptions from ha- from being vaccinated uh, under certain circumstances, including for some non medical reasons um, and basically he 's tightening that down so that the non medical reasons uh, no longer apply um, so this, but this is indicative of something which is going on in a lot of places. If you want to get on a plane, if you want to get on a ferry, if you want to go to a shop or you want to go to a pub, increasingly, the noise is beginning to build. that We're going to have to be able to demonstrate our immunity. We've mentioned that several times during this program. Vaccination, it looks like, is the way that we are going to be able to do that. Um, And so it's not going to be governments which are going to uh, require us to have these vaccinations. It's actually going to be if we want to live our lives and we want to interact with the people that we normally Uh, interact with day to day, Uh, they are saying, as a result of terms and conditions of doing business, that you've got to be able to provide certain evidence. Um, My question is, are people going to resist this?
1: So basically, if you want to engage with the corporate world or the institutional world, um, it's not going to be mandated as such, but it will become policy. Right. If it's policy, you have to comply, otherwise you don't get to participate or you don't get to use those services or enjoy those uh, great luxury experiences or whatever. Well,
0: it's not even about luxury experiences. Some of these are necessary experiences. Mm -hmm. If you need to travel, if you need to take public transport, whether it be a train or a a
1: flight or on a boat. It becomes a privilege, not a right. Absolutely. Yeah. So the the other thing that we're noticing here, and this brings us to, to, to a related story here, Mike, Um, they're now bundling the flu jab in with the COVID vaccine. We're seeing more of this. This is quite a shocking announcement here from one of the largest higher education institutions in the United States, the University of Tennessee, Knoxville. I think they have upwards of 50,000 students uh, on campus, I think, at this particular university. They're saying they're requiring both the flu shot and the COVID vaccine when it becomes available for students to reenter campus, not just students, but faculty as well. I would think that would extend to contractors. Uh, If other universities want to engage in sporting competitions, they're probably going to, the other institutions are going to have to get vaccinated as well and have a mandatory vaccination. So the city, which the university resides in, the university is an important part of their economy. It becomes city policy. If it's city policy, will it be county policy? If it's county policy, will it become state policy? If it's state policy, Will it become national policy? If it's national policy and countries need to interact and carry on with the new normal, then it becomes international policy. Mm -hmm. So without passing a law, without making any official decree, the policy becomes normalized. It begins with one major institution to start the process. And And Bill
0: Gates stands there and says, uh, but it's your choice. It's not mandatory. Yeah,
1: it's not mandatory, but you can't have anything, you can't do anything, you can't go anywhere uh, unless you get this experimental vaccine. It isn't the most odd thing in the world that you'd want to get vaccinated against a virus that doesn't affect 99.5% or something like this of the population. And of those it affects, uh, the fatality rate is incredibly low. Mm -hmm. Why in the world would you want to get vaccinated for that? I wouldn't take any risk. A lot of people would would probably agree with that. Is it worth the risk if the threat level isn't high? Especially if you're below the age of uh, 50 or 60, for instance. Mm -hmm. So.
0: Um, Well, uh, let's uh, move on, Patrick. Uh, And uh, well, it's election season in the United States. And the silliness seems to have begun in earnest.
1: Yeah, but they're not calling this an election story. Uh, This is what we would call Bounty Gate, and this all started with this uh, great scoop here by the New York Times, Uh, and the White House is um, dismissing uh, reports of bounties but is silent on Russia. So, basically, the New York Times put out this story, which is that uh, the the Russians are paying Taliban to take out U.S. soldiers, basically snipers. So let's look at what's behind this story. And basically, it's the claim that American intelligence officials have concluded that a Russian military intelligence unit secretly offered bounties to the Taliban. Offered, doesn't say they necessarily paid. Linked, uh, linked militants for uh, killing coalition forces in Afghanistan, including targeting American troops. It's all very vague.
0: So can I just ask, these are American intelligence officials of the type that uh, created the Iraq war. Propaganda, or maybe the type on the UK side that created the Skripal story.
1: Oh, it's better than that because they're they're alleging it's the same secret Russian GRU unit that uh, carried out the Skripal attacks uh-huh. and hacked the 2016 elections. Right. So they're quite uh, you know um, versatile secret agency in Russia. They do elections, they do hacking, they do fancy bear, cozy bear, they do Novichok and Salisbury, um, and they also. Uh, give cash bungs to uh, jihadis to take out U.S. troops in Afghanistan. Isn't that amazing? Absolutely. So what does Donald Trump think about this? Well, the the allegation is that he was briefed about this back in March and did nothing. And the resistance is absolutely furious about this. How dare he stab our troops in the back, stab our boys in the back? Why won't he call Vladimir Putin out? Why won't he initiate retaliatory measures? Because of a story that appeared in the New York Times that quotes anonymous intelligence officials, well, Donald Trump's been there before. And this is his basically response to this. He says, this is all or, this is all a made up fake news media hoax started to slander me and the Republican Party. It's a hoax, says Donald Trump. He's saying, speak to the hand. This is a hoax. So he's about had enough of it. But the media and the Democratic Party, uh, they have other Another idea behind this, and this is Nancy Pelosi, the third most powerful woman or person in the United States, Speaker of the House, Democrat from California, and she's saying he has undermined any credibility he may have had as Commander-in-Chief, if he could call a possible assault on our troops, our men and women in uniform, uh, by the Russians, a hoax without even wanting to read about it, learn more about it, (laughs) and make a really informed judgment about it.
0: So hold on—a possible assault on our troops?
1: Possible. It, it, it's littered with this, <laughs> possible, alleged, and so forth. So she's basically saying, why won't you acknowledge our fake news story mm. in in the New York Times? And you know why? What, what what's wrong with this president? This is the same Nancy Pelosi that ran with Adam Schiff—a f- totally fake and discredited impeachment effort. They wasted a whole impeachment effort that took I don't know three or four months. Mm. Uh, they they completely. Bombed on that. That the Mueller report bombed as well. So RussiaGate is basically dead. So let's look at BountyGate and just a quick summary here. And so BountyGate, you've got the Taliban in Afghanistan uh, being paid by Vladimir Putin to take out U.S. troops. That's the basic gist of the plot there. So what are they saying here in terms of you know what's what's behind the story? Leaked intelligence. This is the first red flag. From an unnamed uh, from unnamed U.S. sources. Okay. Secondly, this is the beauty here, Mike. The gleaned uh, intelligence was from interrogation of Afghan detainees. Oh, so they
0: tortured people to get this information. So it
1: must be true. It must be accurate. You know, they they possibly tortured some taxi driver or goat herder to get this. Okay. It gets better. The middleman is thought to have ties to both the GRU and the Taliban. So apparently. The, the guys that were being tortured spoke of a middleman that apparently had ties to the GRU and the Taliban. But It, it gets even better than that. So how are they paying these uh, Taliban? How are the Russians paying? Records of Hawala payments, i.e., cash. I, it's a cash IOU system. Yeah, yeah. Okay, it, this is contradictory in itself because Hawala... You don't, don't have records. You don't leave records, <laughs> exactly. So it's, it's, a, it's a total IOU cash system that's used... The Syrian rebels and the jihadis in Syria were being funded through Hawala networks mm-hmm. um, behind, behind enemy lines and behind state lines and stuff like that. So, I mean, the whole, the whole story is kind of a joke. But um, so, so what, what's behind this is uh, something called the Lincoln Project is one of the forces pushing this right now. We've got a video uh, we can show you real quick. Uh, this was put out just after the story broke, and I don't think it's a coincidence uh, was, this was timed so well, but go ahead and we'll roll this.
2: My name is Dan Barkov. I'm a 2001 United States Naval Academy graduate. I'm an ex-Navy SEAL, currently an emergency room physician and the founder of Veterans for Responsible Leadership. Months ago, Donald Trump learned that the Russians were paying bounties for dead American soldiers in Afghanistan. He chose to do nothing about it. Any commander in chief with a spine would be stomping the living shit out of some Russians right now. Diplomatically, economically, or, if necessary, with the sort of asymmetric warfare they're using to send our kids home in body bags. Mr. Trump, you're either a coward who can't stand up to an ex-KGB goon, or you're complicit. Which is it? Donald Trump is unfit to be our commander-in-chief, and that's worse than useless. I'm a pro-life, gun-owning combat veteran, and I can see Trump for what he is, a coward. We need to send this draft dodger back to his golf courses. The lives of our troops depend on it.
1: Where do you start? Well, first of all, a, a Navy SEAL, and he's calling out the president. So this is really driving a wedge uh, in between Trump and the military. He fancies himself as a military candidate. So, But uh, let's look at this, the Lincoln Project. Who are they? Uh, and so the Lincoln Project, we are Republicans. We want Trump defeated. They were launched in December of 2019, so this is an election effort. It's a super PAC here. There's a lot of big names uh, behind it, associated with John McCain and the Bush administration. So basically they're neocons. And so what I can glean from this story is that Trump isn't just isn't being neocon enough, wanting to withdraw U.S. troops from Afghanistan. And this latest story seems to throw a spanner in the work. So let's just revisit the narrative uh, here on this story. So Bounty Gate, now Donald Trump is really Russiagate. That's what we're looking at, okay? That's what Bounty Gate is, and here's why. Let's take a look at why. Basically, so this is an election year story. This is planted in the New York Times. It's one of many stories that are going to be rolled out in the run-up to November, okay? This is designed to discredit Trump, but also to divide his support lines uh, as well. So it, it also pushes Russia out of Afghan peace talks, which are going on right now. Not only that, it China has also been pushed out of this because of uh, poor relations with China. You could blame the president for for that as well. And Iran is not really involved anymore either. So it's really the only parties left are the United States, Pakistan, the Afghan government, which is really a puppet government, and the Taliban. So I'm not sure what the results of this are going to be. Could, Could it end up being a stalemate and we're staying in Afghanistan longer? Certainly, if you look at it from this point of view, Mike, this is one of the objectives of planting this story uh, by the CIA or whoever planted it uh, in the New York Times and created this whole story. So the increased tension ahead of nuclear arms talks with Russia, this is also a, a result. And
0: there's already a ton of tension there as, as the U.S. tries to, you know, pretty bogus in their attempts to get China involved in those talks as well.
1: That's right. That's right. So uh, an election ploy to sow doubt uh, in Trump amongst the military they're really trying hard to divide that support uh, for the president. Now, Donald Trump is faltering in the polls. He, his support is faltering because of the COVID crisis, which he, they're trying to blame everything, including the unemployment levels and all the lockdown measures that state governors have taken. They're also blaming that on Trump. So, But also this revitalizes the anti-Russian media attack mm-hmm. kind of program that we saw uh, from 2016 really up to 2019, and then finally, um, I think that's, is that all? I think that's it, yeah. Yeah, so that, that's really what what this story is all about. It's very clear this is Russiagate 2.0. Uh,
0: you do have to ask, how, how, how much of a dead horse can they keep flogging? Because this doesn't, the, the narrative doesn't change. It's Russiagate, Salisbury, and now this. Yeah. Uh, they didn't, none of those other stories stuck. Why do they think that they could make this one stick?
1: It will stick long enough to, to do his job, so the, there, like i said there 's a bunch of these stories already loaded in the chamber, ready to fire out right up until I would say you know the second week of October usually in u s politics there 's kind of a gentleman 's agreement, no matter how nasty the election is, that everyone will stop um, you know the the, the the scandals or the fake stories will stop and let people campaign for the final two weeks that 's usually what happens so and you, you can basically expect this. There'll be another sex scandal as well, probably for Trump, probably in September or something like that, maybe. you know. So it's expected. It's expect- this is what you're going to get. It's going to be a wild ride the next four months. <laughs> okay. Four months of wildness.
0: Okay. Well, look, thank you very much, Patrick. We'll leave it there for now. Thank you. And uh, thank you for joining us as well. I um, hope everybody will have a great weekend. We'll be back at the same time as usual on Monday, and we hope to see you then. Bye-bye.